Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host for this episode and resident person with hemophilia. Today's focus, Season 1. And previewing where the Global Hemophilia Report is headed in Season 2. It's been an outstanding season, and we'll discuss it right after this quick break. Sanofi is breaking barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. Picture this. You're 12 years old. It's a Tuesday and you should be in school, but instead you're sitting in a room at your local hemophilia treatment center hoping to get a handle on the most recent ankle bleed. Does this sound familiar? If you've been with us since the start, then you may recognize that script and dynamic audio as the opening to episode one on inhibitors. An opening that I wrote, as you might expect, based on my personal experience as a young patient with hemophilia and inhibitors back at the clinic, anticipating my latest visit. As I've mentioned previously, the Global Hemophilia Report's senior advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, was, in a prior life, my pediatric hematologist and the director of the hemophilia treatment center I attended. She, more than any other clinician or person in my life growing up, was the person I was always most keen to hear from about hemophilia and my body, and whose insights and guidance would influence more than anyone how my mother thought about hemophilia year over year. When I first learned that Dr. D. McKelly was leaving the clinic in favor of focusing entirely on research, to be honest, I was sad, hurt. Dare I say I even felt a little betrayed. Why wasn't I enough anymore? Of course, I being enough had nothing to do with anything, but my emotional reaction to first learning that my doctor had changed her career trajectory goes to demonstrate how little I, as then a 20-something, understood and appreciated about the role of research and the myriad of challenges to research into hemophilia and all of its associated complexities. Of course, we need some of the best and brightest minds in hemophilia to be focused on research and the mechanisms of research. Of course, we need talented and committed leadership guiding how research to improve the lives of people with hemophilia is designed, executed, and disseminated. Of course, that transition made sense. I just couldn't see it at the time. And now, years later, and after just one season of the Global Hemophilia Report, I have a much greater appreciation of the role of research. Today, I am proud and honored to know that my former doc went on to become one of the most influential leaders in not just hemophilia research, but all kinds of research through her role at the National Institutes of Health. And I'm proud yet again that I now call her a colleague on this podcast. So to close out season one, Dr. D. McKelly joins me for an extended conversation about our first year here on the Global Hemophilia Report, her origins in hemophilia and research, and her point of view on where the show and the field of hemophilia research goes from here. That's coming up right after this quick break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. 
Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program, fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome back. Now, without further delay, let's join my season one wrap-up discussion with Dr. Donna DiMichele. Yes, but yeah, 37, 37. Well. It's been a privilege and a pleasure doing this with you this season, and we've covered a ton of ground, so we won't be able to hit on everything in, in the context of this finale. But I'm curious to hear from you, Dr. Kelly, given everything we've talked about, inhibitors, pain, prophylaxis, bone and joint health, phenotypes, women with hemophilia, mental health, the whole kit and caboodle. In your mind right now, at the end of 2022, what is the story of research into hemophilia? The story of hemophilia research, Patrick, that we've uncovered in this really marvelous series of interviews with so many experts around the world is that there is a fair amount of research going on in hemophilia. And uh, most of this research, probably unknown to many people, is happening without major headlines. I think people might get the impression that hemophilia research has been entirely industry-driven mm. by new drug development, mm. but I think this series has shown that there is a range of research, much of which is going on beneath the experience of most, beneath the radar of major publicity. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, I think we've only scratched the surface. And we've heard from, as you mentioned, so many, over 50 outstanding contributors from around the world. Of the various guests that we heard of, many of whom you had some prior relationship to, but I'm curious, was there one or two contributions that you found particularly surprising, meaningful, or just otherwise striking? Well, obviously, all of it was impressive. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I was struck uniformly by the passion that all the contributors had for the research that they were doing and for the hemophilia community on whose behalf they were doing this research. I was impressed, as I said, overall. I do want to give maybe some special mention, though, to those researchers who are working to understand mental health, quality of life, Mm. and for those that are exploring the experience of chronic pain and potentially more effective treatment and management of chronic Mm. pain, which we found out through this series that mental health and the experience of chronic pain, which as it turns out, contributes significantly to impairments in quality of life in individuals with hemophilia. Still, you know, despite all the progress we've made, has not garnered sufficient attention. Mm. And my admiration goes out to those who've captured the importance of those particular topics and have been trying their best to really 
make a difference, hampered by methodological insufficiencies, mm. etc. But they really have been trying to make a big difference in those two areas. And, and my head goes off to them. Who or what first inspired you to focus on research? Almost all of the inspiration to enter this field and to do research in this field to my first, one of my first pediatric hematology mentors at the University of Colorado, and that's Dr. William Hathaway. Mm. He was a quiet man. He did tremendous fundamental research in neonatal hematology and hemophilia, but he did not ever grab the spotlight. Mm. In fact, almost all the people who presented that research were his trainees. And, mm. you know, there are quite a few of us who owe our careers to him. I mean, they include some of the people we've spoken to in this series, like Marilyn Manko Johnson, mm. other people in the field like Robert Montgomery and mm. Tom Abshire, many of the luminaries who've then gone on to train others. So Dr. Hathaway's impact on the field has been probably mostly underrecognized, but not by the those who he touched. And, you know, he's going to be 94 next month in January, and I still communicate with him, and our conversations are still unmitigated joy for me. Wow. Well, I will offline with you about how we get one of those conversations here on the Global Hemophilia Report next season, but we'll come back to that. I just would like to add something, though. I would like to add something. However, I also want to pay tribute to Bruce and Barbara Fury. I spent three years, after completing my fellowship at Colorado, I spent three years with them at Tufts in Boston, and they taught me fundamentals of basic science research that have been very, very important to my research career, even though I have not continued on as a basic science researcher. So I really want to give them credit as well for my interest in research. I also meant to mention that as a very early career faculty at Northwestern in Chicago, I became very interested in inhibitor research specifically. I really owe my career trajectory in inhibitor research to the support that I received from the hemophilia community in pursuing, you know, initially my registries and ultimately the clinical trials that I did in inhibitors and in immune tolerance. And I think that the hemophilia community was enormously supportive. And without that, I'm not sure I could have sustained that very rare disease research career path. Another major influence or another major legacy of Bill Hathaway's career as a researcher and a mentor is the inimitable Amy Shapiro. Who we've heard from here as well. So given that I have known you for, we'll, we'll say over 25 years, I feel as though I should probably know the answer to this. But what first drew you into hemophilia? Although I was born in Canada, in Montreal, I actually went to Denver to do what I thought initially was just going to be a single year of rotating internship and ended up staying to do all of my pediatric training at the University of Colorado. And I already went there with an interest in hematology, but the strength of the pediatric hemostasis and thrombosis program as well as the fact that the University of Colorado had one of the first comprehensive hemophilia care centers that I got to experience, train in, was enormously influential in what I dedicated my career to. Mm. Were your parents or family involved in medicine? No, I, I came from a family of teachers on my mother's side. I have a sister who trained in physical therapy at the same time that I was in medical school, but no, 
the answer is there is no, there, there have been really very few medical careers in my family. On the other hand, though, given that I was around teachers, I would have to say that there was a tremendous focus on children in my family and on, you know, working with children and bettering the lives of children. So I'm not surprised that I ended up on the pediatric side of medicine. Yeah, it makes good sense. And I know that research was a part of your work long before we met in, in the clinic in the early mid-90s in New York. But you then left the clinic in the early aughts to focus on research when you took the role you did with the National Institutes of Health here in the United States. What inspired that transition in your career? And, and did you ever regret the move away from the clinic in favor of research? I'm going to start answering that question by saying, of course, I miss patient care. <laughs> There's mm. no way that I could not, after practicing medicine for 30 years and taking care of children with hemophilia for 20 of those years, there's no way that clinical medicine and one-on-one -on -one patient interactions is not near and dear to my heart. But I came to a point after that long in the clinical arena where I began to wonder how I could make a difference on a larger scale rather than a one-on-one -on -one scale with individuals with hemophilia. How could I make things better for persons with hemophilia in a broader capacity? And that's what led me to thinking about research because as I practiced medicine, I was looked at as an expert, but I only practiced with the knowledge that I had. And I was always very cognizant that there were tremendous gaps in that knowledge, that we didn't have the research that we needed, particularly in the realm of inhibitors, to really understand how to prevent and treat, you know, that very devastating complication of hemophilia. So when the opportunity arose to move to the National Institutes of Health, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. I looked at that as an opportunity to really foster more research in this field that would hopefully lead to better understanding of the disease, a better understanding of the complications, and would influence practice, not only at individual hemophilia treatment centers, but you know, across the nation, maybe potentially across the world. We'll be right back after a quick word from Sanofi. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals. I'm curious about the unmet needs that research is seeking to address right now. You made the point toward the top that there is so much that's actually going on, though much of it under the radar or below the radar or off the radar, so to speak. You may have already answered this with your comments about mental health and quality of life. And if so, perhaps we can expand on that a little. Or maybe there's another answer. But I'm curious, in your mind, of all of the unmet needs, which of them is most, I'll say, urgent at the moment and why? I'm going to answer that question more broadly. There are obviously urgent needs for research 
across many of the areas we've highlighted and certainly many of the areas that we haven't yet had a chance to highlight. But I'd like to mention, I'd like to discuss urgent needs in two ways. The first is that most of the research that we've discussed in this series is research that's being done in high and middle-income countries and is not necessarily benefiting the majority of individuals with hemophilia around the world. There's an urgent need to understand how to deliver cost-effective hemophilia care to most of the world, and that will take additional research. And there are methodological challenges for doing that research, but I think we need to invest in the methodologies and the resources that allow us to do the kinds of health outcome and implementation studies that we need to affect care much more globally. The other urgent need is collaboration. One of the trends in many fields, including hemophilia research, is that many studies are institutional or involve very small populations. Many studies are one-off studies, and I'm talking mostly in clinical, you know, in the clinical sphere right now. If we really want to make a difference, even in high-end middle-income countries and really get the biggest bang for our buck, for our research dollars. It's really to coordinate our efforts through an infrastructure that promotes dialogue, determines priorities, and facilitates the research that really needs to be done in a much more deliberative, definitive, and cost-effective way. You mentioned cost-effectiveness just there at the end, and previous to that, a few moments ago, spoke about funding. We have an episode that'll be coming up at the beginning of next year on the barriers to research and progress in research, and I anticipate this might be a part of that discussion. But I wonder if you could speak a bit more to something we haven't covered in season one, and that is the funding mechanisms of research and how that plays into the research that does move forward and the research that doesn't. So without stepping on that, which we may cover in a few episodes with that barriers to research content, what can you share that might be worthwhile at this point in the discussion? You know, anybody who is doing research at the moment will tell you that funding is either the constant pursuit, even for those who are successful, or the holy grail <laughs> for those who are not. It is a constant concern. It takes resources, human and otherwise, to do research. The sources are limited. So the major source of research funding is, of course, the National Institutes of Health. And the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, you know, has a research budget in the billions, because it's about 10% of NIH's budget. But that research is largely funding more fundamental, basic, and early translational research. Many would say that there's just not enough clinical research that's being funded. And unfortunately, it's that scale of funding that's really required for the scale of clinical trials, the scale of clinical research that's going to be the most productive, even in rare diseases. So folks are left with alternative sources, and they're helpful, and they come from foundations. 
and they come from industry. And many of our organizations have grants that are so funded and are really trying to influence and propel research careers in our field through these grants. The amount of funding in each of these grants, however, is still small <laughs> mm. on the scale of the funds required to do research. So what we look at this funding as being critical to is really pilot studies, starting, you know, trying to understand, to get us an idea, develop a hypothesis, start an initial study that then would move on to a larger study. This is what a lot of this funding is supporting. It's also, you know, supporting early career funding, for instance, the Judith Graham Poole Awards that National Hemophilia Foundation has. So it's really providing some foundational funding for basic science research as well. In addition to hemophilia research organizations, you know, big shout out to the American Society of Hematology that's also doing this. And some of these foundations and professional societies do have research awards that are sort of pathway awards. So you can go from one award to another award to another mm. award until you can finally maybe get an NIH grant or a larger grant that might take the research a step further. But everybody knows that we could further a whole bunch more careers if these funds were more plentiful and if there was more funding for clinical research at the highest levels of federal funding. I look forward to hearing more about that and other areas that, as you mentioned, we have not yet dug into next year in season two of the Global Hemophilia Report. To close us out, though, for now, my last question for you, Dr. Kelly, is how do you see discussion about hemophilia research evolving over the next three to five years? Or if you'd like to put a different time horizon on it, I suppose I'm baking into that question. Given that we've just seen the first gene therapeutic for hemophilia B approved in the United States, we've seen the first gene therapeutic for hemophilia A conditionally approved in Europe. The pipeline is as interesting, perhaps, as it's ever been. There is so much. So what do you see as being the big discussion of hemophilia research going forward? That's hard to predict. There's a certain serendipity in research in which a finding, you know, a surprise finding, a serendipitous finding opens up new pathways for research that the two of us sitting here would would never have ima imagined, mm -hmm. you know, and I think probably the greatest example of that, you know, most recently has been emicizumab. So I think it's a little unpredictable and I wouldn't want to venture a guess. I would say though, that I have some ideas about where I hope the direction of hemophilia research moves. And that is in a way that takes advantage of the evolution in science overall, that's leading researchers to try to understand how a disease, for instance, like hemophilia, manifests in an individual because it may be the same genetic defect, but the way it looks, the physical signs, the symptoms, how it plays out and how it manifests in any one particular individual takes place in an environment that is that individual's very unique physical, mental, and emotional environment. And that environment is made up by, let's say, even at the genetic level, genetic expression in so many genes, all of which have an interaction with or many of which have an interaction with each other. So it would be nice to see hemophilia research moving in the direction of trying to understand how you know, hemophilia manifests and how to manage it rather than 
from a perspective of standard guidelines and more from the perspective of what are the unique features of this individual at many different levels that would mandate a very tailored approach to understanding the symptoms and managing those symptoms in that particular individual. And it's harder in rare diseases, but I think it's possible. And let's hope that there are ways to begin that type of, go down, you know, there are ways to sort of head down that research pathway sometime in the future. Pieces of that remind me of the discussion on pain, which is also in my head because it's the recent episodes covered pain, but so much, and I think about Dr. Buckner's contributions in particular about the need for thorough assessment and it takes time and there's just not a way around that which simply takes time. It feels what you're sharing now about really digging into the various manifestations of hemophilia, how we make progress there. It, it feels similar to how do we make progress better understanding pain and how to manage each individual's experience of pain. But that is plenty of fodder for us for next season. Dr. D. McKelly, thank you for everything that you've given to this season. It's been a personal privilege, and the show has certainly benefited from all that you have brought to it. So thank you, and I look forward to the continued collaboration into next year. Well, and I want to thank you, Patrick, and thank your entire team at Believe Limited because this has been quite a unique and refreshing and rewarding experience for me. So thank you for the opportunity to do something that I never thought I would ever do in my career. You are most welcome. Having given me plenty of opportunity I didn't necessarily think was coming my way as my doctor, call it just a mild form of repayment from that perspective and we'll keep it going next year. (laughs) Thank you. I would like to thank the scores of contributors to season one. There would be no Global Hemophilia Report without your contributions, and more importantly, there would be a significant lack of understanding about hemophilia and its importance were it not for you all. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Special thanks goes to all of our episode and topic advisors. We appreciate the additional commitment you all made to the Global Hemophilia Report, and thank you for it. Thanks as well to Lawrence Woolard for contributing as a writer and host across various episodes. And of course, a huge thanks to Dr. Donna D. McKelly for serving as the senior advisor on the Global Hemophilia Report, as well as the sole guest and contributor to today's season one finale episode. Thank you, Dr. D. McKelly. Sanofi is the featured advertiser of the Global Hemophilia Report, without which there would be no program. Thank you, Sanofi, and listeners, please visit sanofihemophilia.com to learn more about Sanofi's global commitment. I would also like to thank the Global Hemophilia Report's producer, Keith Corneluk, editor, Kay Vermeil, graphic designer, Christina Newhard, and all at Bloodstream Media and Believe Limited who have contributed to this season. Thank you. Lastly, thank you, listeners, for listening and for commenting on and sharing episodes on social media. Without your interest in learning more about the science driving hemophilia research right now, there would be no show to produce. Continue to stay tuned, curious, and questioning. That is a wrap for episode 12 and season one of the Global Hemophilia Report. 
Thank you for joining us on our entertaining and informative evidence-based journey this year. It has been an honor and quite a ride. Join us next on January 12th for the start of season two, which will kick off with an episode on the topic of aging with hemophilia, another crucial topic. So be sure that you are subscribed to the Global Hemophilia Report podcast wherever you get your podcasts to have that and all episodes of the Global Hemophilia Report delivered directly to you. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.